Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Icon, the restless billionaire, explores the fascinating contradictions at the heart of the famed financier, Carl Icon. Amassing close to $20 billion over the last half century and at the forefront of some of the most legendary business deals of our time, Icon is often referred to as the lone wolf of Wall Street. He is a feared negotiator, a master strategist in the art of corporate takeovers and investment. He's also a polarizing figure described as both an activist, investor, and a ruthless corporate raider. All of those things are true, and all of those things are in this film, Icon, The Restless Billionaire, and we're joined today by not only the director, but also the president and executive producer of Atlas Media Corporation, and that would be Bruce David Klein. Bruce, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, What about this particular subject, what about this particular time? was uh, the inspiration or how did this project begin for you? Sure. I mean, one of the things I've always been fascinated about is the idea of unique DNA. People who are not only extraordinary and extraordinarily successful, but people who are so outrageously far beyond what their peers are able to accomplish that they are just fascinating. They're a mystery. Why are they like that? What is the formula, if you will, that adds up to Carl Icahn? And that's kind of how I approach everything. And I think with him, it was obviously a really meaty subject because he is so deep and profound and complex and contradictory, which is, of course, makes the perfect documentary subject. As you begin to come to the sort of the formation of this, putting all the pieces together, what's the approach to Carl Icahn? What's his reaction when you say, I'm interested in this? Right. In true Carl Icahn fashion, uh, the first reaction is, you know, like, I ain't doing that. <laughs> you know. And, and one of the things which is kind of interesting is that he's very interested and proud of some of his like humongous deals. I mean, deals really that changed corporations in general, let alone companies like Texaco and TWA and Netflix and Apple and all these companies that he dealt with. You know, that was one of the things that, oh my God, this guy, you know, he's rattled all of these companies in one way or another. And so he was really interested in that part of it. And when I asked him questions about that, he was less interested in the personal stuff. And so part of the back and forth over the first three, six, nine, 12 months that we were debating was getting him to realize that you can't separate them. People who are interested in how did he make $2 billion on that deal? How did he see that this company was not a dog with fleas when everybody else thought it was a dog with fleas? That's what he's interested in. But you had to get him to understand that documentary viewers want to see the 360 and they want to see who is the guy behind those moves, those those brilliant moves that ended up making $2 billion or whatever on it. What makes him tick? 
Where did he come from? And obviously a lot of the answers to that stuff comes in the personal stuff. So as I said, there was a debate uh, back and forth, you know, yeah, I'll talk about the business. Yeah, you don't want, you really want to see me playing tennis or whatever. So long story short, as things went on, I think he both trusted me a little more and he began to see the idea of people who watch documentaries are interested in this. Hence, we now have very intimate scenes in the film of he and his wife having breakfast, which is obviously quite memorable if you've seen it. Uh, You know, you definitely never forget that. But also him playing tennis, him very, very casually talking with his son, him picking up a call in the middle of the night and start arguing about some CEO's compensation package. All of these things are all about what he is. Well, I can understand why someone in his position where he is would be reticent to sort of start to pull back the covers. But at the on the other side of it, as we see in multiple uh, uh, times in the film, that he likes to mix it up. He's 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 game for for the back and forth, the to and fro on whatever it might be, whether it's financial, as the cases we see him coming out to talk to the flight attendants who are in front of his house. He he's not adverse to that sort of thing. So once I'm sure you got that confidence level with him, it sounds like, as we see in the film, he was prepared to move forward. He loves the debate. And I know Andrew Ross Sorkin, one of our uh, journalists who is in the film, he, he mentions that. Carl loves the debate. He thrives on the debate. As you remember, he graduated with high honors and, and won a big thesis for philosophy in Princeton at Princeton University. So he, he, he still has that brain where he likes to break down things in this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. So I think over time, he kind of weighs these things. And, and that's kind of what makes him fascinating. I always say that, you know, being in his presence, he, he's one of the only people that I've ever seen who can argue for literally two hours, make an argument, a very powerful argument that we should plant the tree there in the backyard and he will convince you and wear you down over an hour or two, whatever. And then at the end, when you're convinced, he'll say, you know, on the other hand, maybe it could also go over there. <laughs> and, and it's remarkable to see that kind of brain in, in process because, you know, one of the big questions, obviously, especially when you deal with him and whenever you make a film about somebody is you want to kind of list what are the cliches about the person. So the cliches about Carl are very much, many people said the smartest man I ever met. And many people said the greatest negotiator, the most ruthless, whatever those things are. And you try to find things that may be sometimes contradicted. And one of the things as an example, like the smartest guy I ever met I was very curious about that under the theory that it is true that many people look at rich people and say everything they say is brilliant because, you know, hey, you got $20 billion. You had to have gotten there. And that subtext is if he'll say, you know, I didn't like that film. It's like, oh, Carl Icahn didn't like that film. It carried weight. So one of my questions when I kind of started with this whole uh, project was, is he really that smart? Is he really that unique? Or is it we perceive him to be because he's been 
very successful. And what you realize is, yes, he, he really does have, have something remarkable. In fact, a couple of our crew members, after we filmed with him in his office for a day, and hearing him on the phone, like constantly, he was on the phone once for three hours uh, talking about transmissions. And it was just grinding down into the details and the chemistry of the makeup of transmissions and why they fail and everything. And a couple of crew members came out at the end of that and said, okay, he earns his money. I get it. Because he really does. And, and the other thing that... Um, a lot of the journalists who cover him say is that a lot of people say that he really doesn't understand a lot about these companies that he goes after, that he basically rattles and he's loud and he has this big soapbox and he's very, very rich. So everybody follows him and, and, and that he doesn't really know about what does he know about Apple? What does he know about Netflix? What does he know about an airline? And almost all of the journalists I interviewed who cover him said, but I got to tell you, it's crazy. He actually does know. In many, many, many cases, he actually knows more about the company than the CEOs who run it. So that when a lot of when he attacks a company, a lot of the CEOs and managers will say, oh, what does he know about the, the underwear business or whatever? But he deals with it on such a high level, on such a bottom line, intuitive level, that there is this instinct that he has that very few or possibly no one else has because no one's been that successful in so many different industries as he has. I want to talk a, a little bit more about that, but I want to talk about sort of his history because we've gone, we're talking about him and for a lot of people will only maybe vaguely know that name and really what, what does it mean? But his, as you d described, the sort of the history of American capitalism from, you know, in the 80s, especially through to today is incomplete without telling his story. And so let's let's go back. So I just sort of just to sort of begin a little bit of the discussion. I don't want to get into too much detail because it's in the film, the icon, the restless billionaire. But let's go back to Tappan and, and how that's significant, sort of the uh, sort of a cornerstone of his career and why that matters. The revelation about Tappan is this was a, a very famous stove company in 19, late 1970s. In fact, if you watched any game shows, the prize was always, and now we have a Tappan stove or, a, you know. So, and they were a public company. And Carl essentially started secretly buying stock. And then when he had to reveal that he, he, he bought stock, he called the owners of the company and essentially said, hey, you guys are way undervalued. Your, truck, your, your stock is trading at seven bucks. I calculate it that it's worth 22 bucks, okay? And the reason for that is that it's poorly managed. You basically should sell to a bigger company who will make you even more efficient and make you more profitable. Remember, and this is the key, he's coming at it from the perspective of the shareholders. He believes from the beginning that if you don't own stock, Mr. CEO, and in this case they did, but if you don't own stock, you have to listen to the shareholders. If someone owns 40% of the company, he gets or she gets 40% of the power of saying what's gonna happen. So he basically said to them in, in a process that he would use and perfect in the 80s and later, he basically said, okay, well, I'd like a board seat. 
They said, no, we're not giving you a board seat. He said, okay, I just bought another 10% of the company. And they said, you're still not getting a board seat. He's like, okay, I'm going to buy more of the company and I'm coming to Mansfield, Ohio next week. So he goes to Mansfield, Ohio, and he basically, the, the CEO at that time says, okay, we got an idea. We're not going to sell because if they sell, the CEO now has no power, right? He said, we're going to buy. We're going to buy a company. And Carl is like, this is crazy. They're buying this company overpriced just to, to, to save his job. And then Carl basically got into that board meeting. And at first he was very, very, very quiet. And this is what makes this incredible or revealing, I would say, is that at this time, Carl did not have the money he had has now. People did not know his reputation. He was not feared. He was some guy from New York who was annoying this stove company in Ohio. The bottom line is he got into that board meeting and through sheer force of personality and going for the throat of the CEO he, and the owner of the company, Dick Tappan, he basically said, do not do this takeover. Put me on the board. Do not do this takeover, blah, blah, blah. The bottom line is he won. And not only did he win and get kind of more control over the company, but a couple of months later, Electrolux from Sweden came in and bought the company for $22 a share or $19 a share. So he, his premise coming in was this company's trading for seven bucks, but it's really worth closer to 20. And lo and behold, after he rattled cages and beat them up, they sold it for what Carl essentially said it was worth. And he got rich and all the shareholders got rich. And the owner of the company, Dick Tappan got rich. And, you know, ironically, as we bring out in the film, at, at the closing, they were kind of, what, what just happened? Where did this guy come from? And the owner of the company, Dick Tappan, actually turned to Carl and said, will you manage my money? Sure. And, 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 and so, so that was a great example in a nutshell of what Carl would perfect later with bigger companies, right. Texaco, right. TWA. Um, uh, he was involved in really through the 80s and, and 90s Marvel. I mean, you really cannot fathom how many different industries he's been involved in. So Yeah. And one of the things that I really thought was is a key element to his his pitch was and it's sure it's true. I mean, I, I'm sure there are dozens of examples of the 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 plague of the vice presidents of these companies in some there's hundreds or tens of, you know, there's lots and lots of sort of, I would imagine over the years, as businesses become more successful, people percolate to a certain level. They're not going to be the CEO. They're not going to be the president. So they end up in this kind of layer of management that at some point becomes unproductive and counterproductive. And that's sort of, to me, the kernel, the genius of his pitch was, they all know it, but they're unwilling to recognize it, right? They are. And, and that comes about, honestly, from experience. So in 1983, he took over a company called ACF, which is a, a, a railroad rail car manufacturing company. And they were based in the Midwest, but they had eight floors of offices in Manhattan. That was their sales organization. And Carl went there with a, you know, he tells the story famously many times with a, with a yellow pad and said, okay, what do you guys do in this office in New York? And they said, oh, it's very arcane, Mr. Icon. 
And, and he said, well, you know, okay, I'm not a dummy. Tell me what you do. He's like, well, we do this and we do this. So then he goes to the Midwest and he says, all right, all those guys in New York, what do they do? And the Midwest, the head of the Midwest division said, we have no idea either. And very famously, he fired eight floors of, of Manhattan office space worth of people and essentially made the point in his mind that the productivity of the company was hurting. And what he often says is that he fired you know, all these people, he let them go. He claims they got new jobs, whatever, but he claims that the company was more efficient and not one person made a peep about whatever happened to those people. I can't do the marketing anymore because I don't have those people. So I think that was an example of something that happened to him, a real life example that dramatically affected him. And so for the rest of his life, as you say, he was always very, very wary of, you know, how many vice presidents are there here? How many middle management? Do you need 10 guys to do that? His natural default assumption is that a company is this big, but really could be this big. Yeah. And when you get to know him, it's, you, you're like, okay, he just wants to make more money. And he absolutely does. That's a huge part of what he does. But he also does have this philosophy and this belief and this almost anger that this is outrageous. Why should a company have 7,000 people when they only need 2,000? They're being less efficient. And therefore, all the people that own stock in that company are paying these 5,000 extra people. Again, it's a very tough, not popular view, certainly in these times to have that. But you have to respect him at least for having a consistent philosophy. And yes, not couching the fact that through this all, his number one goal was to make money for a Carl Icahn. There is, you know, it, it was not to make you money. He's happy if you make money, but he wants to make the money. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with the director, Bruce David Klein. He's the director of the documentary film called Icon, The Restless Billionaire. It will be premiering on Tuesday, February 15th on HBO at nine o'clock. But I always say check your local listing when I say that. And uh, because but it will be screening on HBO on Tuesday, February 15th, coming right up. And. There's one thing I want to go back to just real quick, because I think in addition to the intelligence, and it's one of the things that I was sort of trying to see if this was, you know, my thesis is correct. In addition to being well-reasoned and very bright, he's also smart enough to listen to other people as well. I, I felt like he listens. Maybe he doesn't act like he hears you right away, but he does listen to others. And I think that's another key element in being able to be so adept and adroit at what he does as an investor. I, I, I don't know if that's something that you would would uh, echo or not. It's actually interesting to bring that up because the experience of being in a room with him is, is sometimes awkward for people that don't know him. And the reason is that he listens for a really long time to you. And then when you're finished, he actually takes a long, often audible, you know, a audible silence, okay, to think. So you could be telling him, I really believe this in the industry, this in the industry, I believe this, 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 and he'll just sit back, not say a word, never interrupt you. And then at the end of that, 
he'll pause for a really long time and you're like, what's happening? And then he'll come up with a doozy question that often cuts right to the heart of what you said. And then once you get into the argument, then he's interrupting you, whatever. But to absorb new information, I think it is something about his makeup that allows him to do it. And not all of us can do that. Uh, you know, we all want to get our opinions out there, but uh, particularly if, if he feels you really know your stuff and, and then he's not going to, he wants to hear from you. The, it's a, it really is a fascinating look into his life. And, and there are so many elements. I mean, we mentioned Tappan, but there's also, as you mentioned as well, companies like eBay, PayPal, Blockbuster, Apple, Netflix, Herbalife, Caesars. There's just so much that he has been a part of. And this one quick question before I let you go, which I didn't know you could do. And I, this blew me away. I didn't know you could buy a seat on the New York Stock Exchange, which was a key element in his sort of development and his trajectory in his career. You can yes. buy a seat on yes. the New York Stock Yes, and, and that is certainly in the old days, it was probably less now. But back then, that was the moment that you became real as a, as a Wall Street person. You were now a seat on the exchange, which allowed you to trade directly. You don't have to go through people and everything like that. And that cost money and it cost him 400 grand. And he put in some money and he did have a rich uncle, Elliot, who was the most influential person in his life, probably, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who recently died. And he's in the film. We did get to interview him a little. Yeah. Amazing. There's a lot here. The story of Texaco is pretty amazing. There's a lot of interesting people. You have, like you mentioned, Andrew Ross Sorkin, uh, his wife, who's terrific. She's a wonderful counterpoint to him and, and gets you get to see that side of him, as well as his daughter, Michelle, and his son, Brett. And and there's, there's moments of real um, reveals, real uh, humanity that comes forward in him. And we can argue about the, the icon effect on, yeah. on our economy and all those things are certainly discussed in the film. And so thank you for a well-balanced look at him. Absolutely. And B Bill Gates weighs in on it, you, uh, you know, and, and Oliver Stone weighs in on his effect on the Wall Street movie. So right, right. hopefully, you know, people get the sense that this is a 360 view yeah. of an incredibly complex person. Absolutely. And that's kind of the idea. Absolutely. Growing up in Queens, Bella and Michael, this interesting, very interesting stuff just right there. Because And then, as I mentioned to you before we got started, and in my opinion, there is kind of a rosebud moment in the film, and uh, there's a lot here. And I, I really, congratulations on on, on your work. Terrific. You, uh, you, thank you. you. You're, you're welcome. And I mean, you've, most of your career in film has been executive producer and producer, although you have to direct some films. And I don't know if you're going to continue to explore this part of your, uh, part of your career, but... Uh, Congratulations. Working on one now. Thank you. We've been talking with the director of the film, Icon, the Restless Billionaire, and that would be Bruce David Klein. Thank you so much for your time today here on Film School. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, really. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 